we've kind of assumed global peace, no, no geopolitical issues. We're all going to kumbaya, get together. Uh, and as we enter a world where that's not the case anymore, we have to put more resiliency into our supply chains, more duplication, right? So if you, if you, have, if you duplicate things, it's inherently less efficient uh, and more inflationary, but more resilient. Hello there, how are you all doing? Welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by Gemini, the only place I am using for buying Bitcoin. I'm your host, Peter McCormack. And before we get into the interview today, I have a quick message from my show sponsors. This show is brought to you by Level. Now, as the world migrates from traditional walled garden financial rails to Bitcoin, Level has rebuilt its Bitcoin trading app to become the first full suite Bitcoin banking app. The Bitcoin revolution isn't just about investing dollars, it's about replacing them. So, while other apps help you to buy Bitcoin, the Level app lets you use your Bitcoin for daily life. You can get paid in Bitcoin, you can spend Bitcoin anywhere, and you can even earn Bitcoin rewards. All of this is alongside a traditional fiat account, so you can manage your Bitcoin alongside your traditional currencies. Now, Level are reserving 500 beta slots for WBD listeners ready to go all in and bank in Bitcoin. If you want to find out more, head over to level.co forward slash WBD, which is lvl.co forward slash WBD for info and early access. Next up, it's Casa. Whether you've just bought your first SaaS or you're a Bitcoin pro, you need to protect your investment. And the only person who should be in charge of your Bitcoin and your financial freedom is you. And securing your Bitcoin does not have to be difficult because Casa makes it so easy. Getting started is super simple. You just download the app, create an account, and enjoy a 30-day free trial. And if you need some assistance, it is just a click or phone call away. Casa has best-in-class customer support and free online resources to support you. Now, 12 Canada recently showed us the importance of self-custody and taking control of your money when they froze protesters' finances with no warning. Take your financial freedom into your hands by self-custodying your Bitcoin so it can never be frozen without your consent. There is no better time to upgrade your Bitcoin security and get total peace of mind. You can find out more at keys.casa, which is K-E-Y-S dot C-A-S-A. Next up, it is Gemini, who I am using exclusively for buying and selling Bitcoin. And even though they've been with me for a year, I have not sold a single sat with Gemini. I'm only buying. I'm a hodler but I have been buying Bitcoin with them. Not only have I been buying the dips through Gemini, but I also set up my DCA with twice monthly buys of Bitcoin, and I'm yet to see a better or easier interface for buying Bitcoin. With a streamlined trading view, you have access to all the tools you need to understand Bitcoin and start investing, all through one clear, attractive interface. And Gemini are now running a special offer for listeners of what Bitcoin did. All you need to do is head over to gemini.com forward slash WBD and new customers will get $20 in Bitcoin when they trade $100 or more on Gemini. If you want to find out more, please head over to Gemini.com forward slash WBD, which is G-E-M-I-N-I.com forward slash WBD. Also today, we have sportsbet.io, the very best place for online gaming because they're badasses and they accept Bitcoin. Now, we are over halfway through the season. Liverpool have just picked up their first trophy, Tottenham are struggling as ever. This season is going as planned. But how's it going to finish? Do you know how it's going to finish? Will Liverpool win the title? Will they snatch it away from City? Who's going to win the league? Who's going to win the Champions League? Who knows? 
Well, anyway, if you want to take a bet, sportsbet.io has got you covered. And not just with football. They cover tennis, motorsports, US sports. They even cover esports. And for new customers, there's always a range of promotions available. So if you want to find out more, please head over to sportsbet.io forward slash promotions. That is S-P-O-R-T-S-B-E-T dot I-O forward slash promotions. Hi, Lynn. How are you? Good. How are you? I'm very good. Thank you. So uh, quite quite a lot's happening in the world. <laughs> so I asked you to come on a little. Yeah, I asked you to come on a little early this month. Uh, we made a show recently called "The Currency Wars," which uh, talked about the potential that in the future we might see some form of currency war, and it was a very popular show. Everyone loved it, and now we seem to have fast forwarded into what that conversation was about. So I thought it would be worth getting you on start talking about this uh just a broad question for you really like how how are you taking how are you taking uh uh, everything that's happening in the world right now because it's uh, war's never good but it's also like crazy to watch everything's happening economically you i'm expecting it's probably one of your busiest times yeah this reminds me a lot of march 2020 when basically there's a lot of things going on and you have to quickly assess every asset class kind of you know you know, make sure your your framework is refreshed. And so, I mean, you know, one is just the humanitarian crisis. So just from a, from a non-professional standpoint, uh, that's just concerning in its own right. And then from a professional standpoint, the way I would describe it is kind of like how COVID-19 uh, accelerated a lot of trends that were probably going to happen anyway, like a shift towards remote work. It kind of just pulled things forward. You know, same thing with fiscal stimulus and things that were, I think were probably going to happen anyway. It pulled forward a lot of that. Uh, and so I think that this event is pulling forward some of the currency wars things we discussed. And so, uh, uh, you know, kind of a, a research topic I've been focusing on for a couple of years now is the petrodollar system, uh, the downsides of it, and the eventual trend towards, you know, decentralization of that or bifurcation of that, kind of a, a more multi-reserve, multipolar system. And this sort of war can accelerate that trend. And so that, that's how I'm interpreting it at this time. And I guess you're having to think about this on two fronts, uh, your personal investment uh, thesis, but also as now one of the leading macro speakers on uh, globally, I expect there's a lot of demand on your time and people want to know what your perspective is on all of this. Well, it's certainly been challenging for the inbox, that's for sure. (laughs) And I try to, you know, I try to, uh, you know, read as many as possible and and then answer those questions in articles I write. So I, I, I try to cover it at scale. But yeah, basically there is a lot of things going on and this just it just pulls forward so much and it, it just requires a reassessment of, of every asset class. Yeah, so let, let's dig into this. Um, this is a, a kind of a, a strange war to observe from the outside. Uh, not only is it a war where we're fo- getting to follow it on social media, uh, at, at, but it's more a strange war because not only are the weapons of war bombs of propaganda, but uh, money itself and commodities are now essentially become weapons of war, become part of the, uh, how do we put it? Yeah, just really, they just become weapons themselves. Yeah, for the commodity part, that I mean, that's always been a key aspect of war. I mean, during World War II, secure over oil fields uh, was a key part of it. Uh, that's why there were some, so you know, a significant amount of battles, uh, even in the European theater outside of Europe. A lot of it was to secure certain energy supplies. And so that that's no 
that's not new. It is new, re- relatively new to have this level of financial warfare, right? So for example, freezing reserves. And this kind of brings the question of how much Putin anticipated because they did, you know, make themselves sanction resistant by focusing on gold and de-dollarizing as much as possible. Uh, but they did have a very big focus on euro-denominated assets. And maybe he didn't expect that they would freeze the euro-denominated assets. It's hard to say for sure. But essentially, several hundred billion dollars of Russian reserves have been frozen uh, by the West, by, by these sanctions. And that is equal to several years' worth of military spending for Russia. I mean, it's a, it's a huge percentage of their GDP, uh, a huge multiple of their annual military spend. And so it's, it's already been an extraordinarily expensive war for Russia to fight, let alone the devaluation of the ruble, the decimation of Russian savings, the, you know, the stock, you know, the, their stock market being imploded. Uh, then there's also just the reserves themselves being frozen. Uh, and that kind of shows this level of financial warfare that's happening. And, you know, their counterpoint is, hey, we control like a, a significant minority of commodities, uh, you know, both for energy and also even for, for you know, uh, uh, green tech, you know, nickel, for example, is absolutely key for battery technologies as we currently know it. Uh, and so it's kind of this this war between what's going to happen first. Is, Rus- is Russia's financial crisis going to kick in faster than Europe and the rest of the world's commodity crisis? And we're kind of in this race between, you know, who, who can harm each other the fastest uh, while, you know, they're not having a kinetic war between each other, the kinetic war is focused in Ukraine, but these, these greater powers are focusing on this financial and commodity war in the background of the actual physical warfare. And your observation of this race, who do you think struggling more? Because is it, yeah, we know when sanctions are put in place that it tends to harm the people before it harms the leaders. And it feels yeah. to me like historically sanctions don't usually work. So I think I think they're both, unfortunately, being very you know successful in terms of hurting the populations. I mean, Europe's struggling with the energy crisis. Uh, Russians are struggling with the financial crisis. From my reading of it, I think Russia is being hit harder, faster. Um, and but it remains to be seen if that will be the case longer term. You know, to the extent that sanctions help, I mean, it's challenging because polls generally showed, including Western polls, showed that actually a decent number of Russians were in favor of this type of conflict. Uh, and that could diminish over time because of this, right? Putin could lose political support, both of oligarchs and of the population. Um, but it's unclear if that'll work or not. It could it could have the opposite effect. It could, it could uh, kind of, you know, polarize them around Russia and away from the rest of the world. I don't really have the, the expertise to determine how successful those will be. It's just an observation about what's happening. Uh, and so, it's not even just the sanctions. It's it's like all these self-sanctions as well. So a lot of companies are just saying, we're not going to sell our products into Russia. And and that includes a lot of the internet companies, the internet, te- the technology providers, things like that. And so in addition to bifurcated supply chains, bifurcated commodity markets, uh, that could contribute to the bifurcation of the internet. Kind of like how China and the Western world kind of have their own internets. Uh, Russia could shift more towards the Chinese internet side. Uh, and so you almost have two internets uh, around the world. So what what kind of impact are we aware of that this is happening on people within Russia? What are you seeing? Well, one is that their savings have been just severely hurt. Uh, the you know the Russian stock market's been closed and and you know totally impaired. Uh, you know uh, it, it's just completely devastated. And from studies I've seen, 
uh, from, by example, I think Meb Faber of Cambria Investments cited this. Uh, the Russians have like 90, you know, uh, among the Russians that have stocks, which is not not all of them, and the, and whatever percentage they have in stocks, 95% of that is in Russian stocks, right? So they have very little global diversification, and Russian stocks were decimated. So a lot of people just have their real estate damaged. Uh, I mean, their, their, you know, their savings damaged. Then they have their stocks crushed. And then real estate remains kind of an open question, right? So that, that gets marked to market a lot slower. Uh, it's obviously a, a decent inflation hedge overall, but only if people want to want to buy those properties. If people try to, you know, if, if people leave Russia where, where they can, uh, that's obviously very detrimental to their real estate values. And so pretty much across the board, uh, among multiple asset classes, uh, they're being hurt very poorly. Now, the ones that are doing better are maybe the select few that do have a decent amount of international exposure to other assets. Could be dollars, could be U.S. stocks, could be gold, could be could be Bitcoin, right? So, so Russians that do have those foreign assets are the ones that are you know holding up way better than their peers. Uh, and then we've also seen in Ukraine, for example, ATMs you know running out of cash. People trying to flee with money that they, you know, that they can get, uh, and both both Ukraine and Russia are pretty high on the on the you know the crypto adoption index that the chain analysis kind of puts together. So I believe Ukraine was number four, Russia is something like number nineteen, uh, and so both both of those populations do have rather high amounts of of Bitcoin and crypto exposure. I don't know specifically the breakdown because I think the crypto index just kind of looks at multiple assets, but you know obviously it's generally Bitcoin focused. Um, and so both of them do have a decent percentage of people that have those assets and those that had them are, are more protected. And in terms of the ruble being hit quite badly, what, what is the direct impact on that? Is it mainly with regards to bringing in imports that Russia may be perhaps relies on? How much defense can the, the Russian government put against that? How self-sustainable can they be? Yeah, so before the war, the ruble is already kind of weak. And it's interesting because the ruble, in some ways, you know, before their reserves were frozen, if you just look at the fundamentals, the ruble was actually pretty strong, right? So it was, it's the currency that is actually the most gold-backed of any major currency, meaning that their gold reserves as a percentage of their money supply were among the highest in the world, arguably the single highest, especially out of major currencies. And then they had very large reserves, uh, and but that was obviously a lot of those reserves were frozen, so their, their effective reserves as a percentage of money supply just went down significantly. Um, and of course, the sanctions can decimate their economy, which, which makes nobody want to owe in the ruble. Uh, and so overall, that should be a very severe effect. So prior to the war, there's kind of a mixed bag. So on one hand, their import power was not very strong, but it also made their export power very good. And so, for example, one of the reasons that Russia is such a good wheat exporter uh, is that, you know, in addition to just the good uh, uh, geography for it, they have fairly low labor costs, right? When you have an undervalued currency, if you if you kind of run through what Russia's currency should have been valued at versus what it was valued at, it was essentially undervalued. And so it, it's not good for their importing power, but it does give them a lot of export competitiveness. And so that was, that was all pre-war. Now, with the war going on, they get most of the bad sides of it. So they've obviously they have a lot of trouble importing things, both from the strength of the currency and the fact that many, many companies are just saying, we're going to close our Russian operations or we're not going to sell to Russia. And so their ability to get imports has been greatly impaired, uh, except that they can still get uh, it, their imports from China. Uh, and so they, they, it kind of forces them to shift east 
uh, in terms of their import dynamics. Uh, their export competitiveness would get better if it wasn't for the fact that, again, a lot of comp- a lot of places are saying we don't want to buy Russian products. Uh, but of course, it's complicated because their commodities are required around the world. Uh, and so, you know, many countries were sanctioning where they could, but they couldn't sanction their commodities. But then in many cases, Russia is then starting to do that for them and say, well, we're not we're going to put export restrictions on some of our commodities and kind of make lists of who we don't want to sell our commodities to. And so that's where you get that kind of counterpoint. And then it becomes a race to see, you know, does Russia go insolvent before Europe goes like commodity insolvent, for example. And so that's that's this background war we're having in addition to the kinetic war. And so there there is a chance of the country going insolvent. How does a how does a country go insolvent? What what is the actual impact on that? Is would, would that be a complete collapse of the country? Perhaps therefore a collapse of the government? Uh, in the extreme case, yeah. I mean, there's a spectrum. Right. So on, on, the, on the very extreme case, you have like a Venezuela situation. Right. Uh, a less extreme case, you have what's happening in Argentina and Turkey and currently Russia now. Uh, and so going into this. So Russia looked very different than Argentina and Turkey because Argentina and Turkey had a lot of foreign debt and pretty low reserves. Right. So they were they were prone to financial crisis. And that's part of the reason we've been seeing such massive inflation out of them and them having an inability to contain their currency. Russia was the opposite, where they were they were built like a fortress position. Uh, I, I even had a meme out there saying that, you know, they had like trade surplus, low debt, high reserves. Uh, Putin was fairly popular in polls, both both domestic polls and Western polls. Uh, and then they did this, and just across the board, all those things are getting damaged, right? So basically, if they have a financial crisis, depending on how bad it gets, and at this early stage, it's still hard to say how bad it will get. But uh, you know, at the very least, they're already kind of now looking like Turkey or Argentina with, with obviously very bad inflation, disastrously high interest rates, uh, just totally seized up economy. And if it gets bad enough, I mean, if, if the sanctions get bad enough and if they're cut off enough – it could look like Venezuela. You could have that sort of situation. I think I think a key factor that's going to determine how badly Russia is impacted is to what extent they can rely on China and to what extent they can renegotiate some of their commodities. And so one point that I've made is that countries with GDP per capita less than like say 15,000 are less likely to go along with Western sanctions because they absolutely need the commodities, right? So when you have GDP per capita of like 3,000, you have less flexibility to decide who you're going to buy commodities from. And so if Russia can renegotiate, you know, kind of shift where it sends its commodities to, um, they're already talking about building pipelines that would say, redirect some of the European natural gas to China, for example, but those take time. And so if they're able to navigate that, then they could stave off among the worst crises. uh, but it remains to be seen. I can imagine one of those types of pipelines, though, takes, what, years to build? Usually years. I mean, they can, I mean, now they have a national incentive to throw everything possible at it. So I would, you know, kind of cut off time from whatever the normal case is. But they, you know, they built, the, I believe it was called the Power of Siberia. It was a pipeline that does go to Russia, to China. And because you can imagine that the amount of land space there, uh, it's it's one of the lo- longest pipelines around it was like, you know, well over a thousand miles. I don't have the data in front of me, but it was a very large pipeline. And that did take years to construct. And so they essentially want to build more of those and also make connections so they can redirect European natural gas to them, 
rather than being separate systems. And that does take time. Similarly, it takes time for Europe to build LNG capacity so that it can become less reliant on Russian gas. And so that's kind of the emergency situation is that, see, oil is more fungible, right? Because except for very niche situations where uh, kind of a region's cut off uh, from supply chains, for the most part, there's less extreme oil pricing differentials around the world because a barrel of oil can be transported relatively easily. And so you get minor differences of pricing, uh, but not, not usually huge differences in pricing. Whereas natural gas, because it's harder to transport, naturally has bigger price differentials between locations. But even before the war, we were seeing this between, say, Europe and America, where Europe, you know, at some points had gas that was like 10 times more expensive than America. Uh, and that's because you either do pipelines, which is obviously very location specific, or you do LNG, which is rather expensive and has very limited capacity, right? So we can't just like triple our LNG next month, right? So there, there's there's hard limits on how much you can do. And so that that infrastructure takes time to build as well. And so it's a mess on both sides. And it's one of those things where al- almost nobody wins from this conflict, it seems. Okay. Um, are we... Um are we hearing any case studies of things which are happening on the ground in Russia, like the impact of this? One of the things I heard about was, for example, they can't now import parts for Boeing. So there's a risk to the the airlines, and which was something that I hadn't you know, considered, obviously. But now I've heard about it. It obviously makes total sense. Uh, my dad was an aircraft engineer. They constantly having to check the planes and fix parts of the planes and change parts of the planes. Um, so that's a that's just one example of just a single industry for them that's now at risk if they can't get the parts. Exactly. Both Boeing and Airbus uh, uh, can restrict their parts and, and suppliers can restrict their parts, uh, basically the avionics providers and things like that. And so that can cause issues. We actually saw similar issues for Iran because a lot of uh, there, there was basically restrictions on parts to maintain their nuclear facilities, their nuclear power, you know, kind of the, the approach there. And so when you have a very complex system and you get your, your maintenance parts cut off, uh, that does over time degrade systems. Uh, and you can have things go offline, uh, you know, uh, basically have to shut down power plants or have to shut down uh, part of your fleet because you're unable to maintain it. Now, Russia does have obviously a very strong aerospace industry on its own. So it's, it's maybe less impacted than some countries would be, but it's still obviously impacted uh, by, uh, you know, all of those shutoffs, including the aerospace ones. And what about just like general citizens? Is there any particular pain points we're hearing about with regards to these sanctions or what's been happening? Well, I think that I think this def- the devastation of the savings was obviously the big one. But yeah, basically, we're seeing consumer brands cut off. You're seeing shut down McDonald's. You're seeing uh, you know, Microsoft, I mean, Apple, like basically all the normal products that you interact with are being one, kind of one by one elected uh, to not be sent there. And so I, I think that this, you know, because this has only been a short period of time, you know, I, I don't study the anecdotal on the ground stuff as much as some other people do. Some of the journalists would be much better people to ask about that than me. I focus more on the financial aspect. But basically, it had, so far, it's been a short period of time. But the longer this drags out, obviously, the more those things start to notice, right? So, for example, if you have a laptop already, maybe you're not impacted by the fact that now it's going to be harder to get certain laptops. But if as you go on and you need a new one, well, then it becomes a pretty significant issue. So over over time, this should compound uh, as they have less and less access to all these different Western brands. And they're either forced to go without or they're forced to shift east in terms of the, the supply of, of goods and services that they use. 
Well, my assumption is there will be a kind of black market that opens up via somewhere like China. There, there'll be uh, uh, certain entrepreneurs will see an opportunity here to, you know, even if Nike's cut off, somebody can go to China and perhaps buy products and bring them, import them into Russia that way. I mean, you know, China doesn't pay attention to these sanctions themselves, right? Yeah, they'll better do that. I mean, they'll obviously be more expensive with all those steps. And so the basically the Chinese-made products, uh, well, specifically including the Chinese-branded products, will be much cheaper than many of their Western counterparts to the extent that those Western ones are available kind of indirectly. Yeah. Okay, I do want to talk about the wider impact on the, uh, the rest of the world, but can we talk about specifically uh, with regards to China? We're seeing an impact here in, well, I mentioned in the US, but we're seeing the impact of gas prices here, commodity prices. The same is happening in uh, Europe. Uh, petrol or diesel in particular in London, one one petrol station hit two pounds per litre, which works out at about $10 a gallon. So when Americans are complaining about $6 a gallon, we're like, oh, hold, hold my beer. <laughs> it's a lot higher in, uh, in the UK. But uh, is similar happening to China or is there little to no impact on them? Be- you know, what, what do we know about that? So China is being impacted. Um, uh, they, you know, going into this crisis, they were already, they were having, for example, spiking coal prices. That's a big problem for them because they get a lot of their power from coal. Uh, and so they, that's been an issue. Uh, in addition to obviously the oil and gas prices are, are a problem for them. Now they had a less acute gas issue than Europe. Uh, um, but, you know, a- Asia has been impacted by higher gas prices as well. Uh, in the longer run, one thing that looks like China's doing is that so a lot of these Western companies were forced or, or, or you know, pretty much had to divest their Russian assets, uh, really at pennies on the dollar, kind of just mark them down, get out of those positions. Uh, and so China has already stated a willingness, an interest in potentially coming up and scooping up some of these Russian uh, energy commodity assets. And so that kind of continues the Belt and Road trend that China's been doing, where instead of reinvesting their dollar trade surpluses into treasuries, they've been investing them into making loans to developing countries uh, that that generally give them access to commodities or infrastructure. And so it seems like this kind of gives them an upper hand in terms of getting, you know, kind of bargain priced uh, energy and commodities. Right. And if they're potentially one of the only buyers that Russia has available, they're going to be able to negotiate particularly low prices on these commodities. Well, at least on the commodity interest. I think over time, Russia will probably be able to access a number of markets that, that they don't really have the ability to select where they get their commodities from. So maybe we can look at, you know, countries like India, uh, you know, countries like Brazil. We'll see over time, the longer this drags out, I think Russia will probably be able to find buyers for its commodities. Um, but uh, during this period where they need capital uh, and many of their assets are selling very cheaply, that does give China a window to come in and get a lot of those assets. I'm struggling to see who actually is really benefiting from this uh, for what appears to be a, and, and I understand the full historical context of this, the, uh, the accusations of NATO placing missiles closer to Russia, but this is a global lose-lose right now. That's why this ex- the extent of this conflict was was somewhat surprising to me. I mean, I don't think a lot of people would have been surprised by some activity around eastern Ukraine, uh, around some of those borders. But the, the extent of this attack uh, surprised me and surprised many, because as you point out, there's almost no winners from this, right? So uh, Russians are, you know, the vast majority of Russians are not benefiting. Many of them have gone over and, and fought and died. Uh, Ukrainians obviously are, are not benefiting. 
Russian oligarchs aren't benefiting. Uh, it's hard to see who is benefiting from this. Uh, I think, you know, if this drags out, China could be a beneficiary, uh, potentially, like the, for the reasons we discussed, that they, it kind of gives them a little bit more influence over Russia, because they're saying, you know, basically Russia now has fewer options. Um, and so it might be good for China. Uh, it's hard to say for sure. It also gave China kind of intel on what would happen if you tried to invade an area. Uh, it kind of gives Russia, I mean, uh, China a playbook of, okay, we need to avoid this problem. We need to avoid this problem. Uh, so I think they might be a beneficiary. But overall, you know, there, there are people that focus on geopolitics and cultural histories, obviously, a lot more than me. Uh, so for me, it looks irrational, you know, but it, you know, it, it doesn't look like there's any winners to me, really. Well, what about Ukraine? Does it, does it still have any type of functioning economy? Well, the economy is, so partly what we're seeing is that Russia is seizing some of their, you know, their shipping assets and things like that. And so part of part of why wheat, for example, is so expensive is one is that Russia is a big wheat exporter, but so is Ukraine. And to, so to the extent that Russia is able to control large portions of Ukraine, uh, I, I think what we're seeing is that, you know, we're kind of missing a harvest season. We're missing a planting season over there. And so that's that's going to affect uh, global wheat prices and global just, you know, agricultural in general. Uh, and then. You know, obviously, it's hard. It's it's hard to function even in an inflationary economy, let alone a war economy. It's just it's very hard to have a functioning economy. You have well over a million refugees spreading into into the rest of Europe, uh, and so it is hard to call that a functioning economy at this current time. Uh, and so, that's obviously impacting a lot of that region. Uh, but then specifically, it contributes to the commodity shortfalls that we see uh, worldwide. And wheat prices, why are they so important? Is it because they are a benchmark for other agricultural prices, or is it just because wheat is such an important part of the production of so many uh, food staples? Basically, as one of the, so along with soybeans and rice, I mean, wheat is a, a, a huge staple for human consumption. Now, we can talk about the health of eating a lot of wheat, for example, <laughs> yeah. but, it, but, it is a, it, but it is a huge source of calories for people around the world. Uh, and it's 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 in almost everything. I mean, it's in all sorts of you know. It's not just bread and pasta. It's in. It's an input to all sorts of kind of processed foods, all sorts of, of staples that they eat around the world. Uh, and so, uh, you know, for example, Egypt gets a lot of its uh, wheat imports from Ukraine and Russia, right? So now they have like a. I think they put out an, uh, basically a, 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 a restriction on exporting some of their food staples because now every country in the world has to reassess its food security and say, okay, are we getting enough? Uh, and yeah, and cause that's when you have like revolutions, like when you have food prices go up, that's, that's how you get revolutions. When people, when people can't put food on the table, uh, that's when they just go out in the street and protest and you're willing to get violent because they kind of have nothing else to lose at that point. And so pretty much the number one kind of, priority of any of any government in the world is making sure that people are, are fed and that there's no food insecurity problems, at least if it's possible. And so spiking wheat prices, uh, in addition to being highly inflationary in general, it's also like a big barometer for usually social upheaval, especially in some of the more vulnerable countries out there. And are we seeing any anecdotal evidence of that? Well, I mean, this this is all happening in a number of weeks, right? So it takes time for these shortages to kick in besides just price going up. But the longer this goes, you'll see higher and higher food prices. 
you know, the, the, I think the cleanest example is the Arab Spring a decade ago, right? When, you know, that was correlated uh, and many would argue caused or partially caused by uh, you had a big, that, that's when you had kind of the last uh, 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 spike in foodstuffs, right? So you already, obviously you already had simmering uh, tensions and it, it's often the case that the, the spike in food price is like the final nail in the coffin where they say, okay, now we're going into the streets, right? Now we're going to protest. Uh, and so, you know, we're not, you, you know, uh, Kazakhstan had issues like that with energy not that long ago, right? That, that's, that's what was, was a big contributor to what sparked their protests. And so this whole kind of wheat shortage or wheat, you know, wheat price spikes are just kind of kicking in now. But essentially, the longer they go, as you go out more weeks and more months, uh, that could trigger, you know, protests, revolutions around the world, as, as well as just suffering for even if there's no, you know, major social upheaval in certain countries, just the poorest people have trouble affording food. Before we carry on with the interview, I do have a quick message from my show sponsors. This show is brought to you by BCB Group. Now, BCB Group provide online business banking for companies in the Bitcoin industry. And yes, of course, I am a BCB customer too now. Now, they heard about the difficulty I was having finding a new bank, and they understand Bitcoin. So when they reached out to me and said, Pete, you should move your account over to BCB Group, I was like, sure. Sounds absolutely perfect for me. And I could not be happier with the service they have provided me. Now, BCB clients include major exchanges, market makers, funds, and miners active in the UK and Europe but they are now expanding globally. They also have this amazing network called Blink, which facilitates instant free payments between BCB clients for all supported currencies. Now listen, I know some of you have also had trouble with your banking, and if you are looking for a banking provider who understands and supports Bitcoin companies rather than creating hurdles, then like me, you want to become a BCB customer. Now if you want to find out, please head over to bcbgroup.com forward slash Peter, which is BCB G-R-O-U-P dot com forward slash Peter. Next up, it is Ledger, the world's most popular hardware wallet. Now listen, in Bitcoin, we have this saying, right? Not your keys, not your Bitcoin. So if you're a Bitcoin holder, it is your money and it's time for you to own it. And if you're not storing your Bitcoin on a hardware wallet, then you are trusting somebody else. I took control of my Bitcoin back in 2017 when I bought my first Ledger Nano S and I'm still using that same device today. Ledger is the smartest and easiest way for you to take control of your Bitcoin. Now, if you would like to find out more or purchase a hardware wallet from Ledger, then please head over to ledger.com, which is L-E-D-G-E-R.com. Next up, it is BlockFi. Now, BlockFi bridges the world of traditional finance and Bitcoin, empowering you for this future financial world. And for people in the US who own or are interested in owning Bitcoin or stacking more sats, then the BlockFi Rewards credit card provides the easiest way for you to earn Bitcoin. There are no fees to use this card, no annual fee, and no foreign transaction fees. And you can get 3.5% back in Bitcoin on all purchases in your first three months, and then 1.5% back forever after. And also, for every dollar you spend over 50000 annually, you can get 2% back in Bitcoin. Now, if you want to stack stats with BlockFi, then please head over to BlockFi.com for more information and to find out the terms and conditions. This is BlockFi.com, which is B-L-O-C-K-F-I.com. Also today, we have Compass Mining, and they are not just a sponsor. I am a customer of Compass Mining. I am mining with Compass Mining. Now, I've been doing this for about 
wow, what is it, like four months now, and I've mined over half a Bitcoin with them. It's pretty cool. It's very cool, actually. I love the fact that I'm back mining. And I also love the way Compass does this. They've made mining accessible to everyone. And as a Bitcoiner, I'm happy to be supporting the decentralized growth of the hash rate. It was so easy to get onboarded, and now anyone can mine Bitcoin. You just pick your machines, choose your hosting facility, and they do all the rest of the work for you. Now, if you are interested in mining, or if you want to find out more, then please head over to compassmining.io. That is C-O-M-P-A-S-S-M-I-N-I-N-G dot I-O. Yeah, it's it's strange to to follow this. Um, I'm, I don't feel like I've ever ever lived through such an like these types of events. Not certainly not in my adult life. And uh, food and energy security seem to be the things that have been most challenged uh, during this time. And 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 a time of globalization. You look at say a country like the U.S., which both imports but exports oil. Which yeah, you probably give me really. Uh, good reasons for why that happens, but it feels like we might go through a phase of kind of deglobalization because there is so much risk with events like this that countries can't rely on their imports from other countries. Yeah. So to your prior question, so there are different types of oil. Uh, we often think of it as just oil, but there's actually multiple types of oil, and there are fi- refineries that are designed to work with certain types of oil. So you can have funny situations where you have to both import and export, right? So you might have to import a certain type of oil, and even if you you know, produce oil domestically, it might not be the same type as your own refineries are geared towards. So uh, as we talked about, this infrastructure takes years to build, and it's kind of dissolve- designed with pretty long life cycles, decades. Uh, and so that's not something that just turns overnight. And so the United States, for example, is designed to refine, you know, uh, we have a lot of refineries, for example, that work with Middle Eastern oil, as an example. Uh, and so, you know, again, there, there are like petrochemical engineers that can go into way more detail about uh, that whole thing and what our, what our exact percentages are. But it's important to be aware of that even in something that should be, you conceptualize it as simple, like energy processing, it's just as complex as the global supply chain. It's like if one little piece is messed up, you know, these things that you don't even think of start to break down. Uh, and so in addition to how complex our global supply chains are, like we talked about, you know, even getting parts to service an airline, right? So uh, basically how complex that all is, all the semiconductors, all the commodities, all of the, the, the little components that, that go into all these designs. In addition, there are commodity issues. And so another example is that uh, fertilizers. So, so natural gas is a key input into fertilizer, uh, Russia has a lot of the the raw materials that go into fertilizers, uh, and so that can also impact not just wheat prices but agricultural prices across the board. Uh, and so that that's part of why this situation is so extreme is because there, you know, it's, it, there are very specific things that can cause massive shortages uh, and massive suffering if you're without them. Okay, let's talk a little bit more now about what's happening to the more of the Western world. Uh, we've talked about. Uh, petrol and diesel prices up in the UK, gas prices here up in the US, commodity prices are up. Uh, We were already in challenging economic times. Uh, Let's start with inflation. So inflation figures came in at 7.9, is it 7.9% I think yesterday? Um, CPI figures. Are those figures, would they already have been arrived at prior to these events or do they include these events? So these these pretty much would have already been arrived at uh, prior to these events, for the most part. 
Uh, and so it's really kind of the next few prints that I think are going to be heavily impacted by these. And so, for example, I've, I've been on the inflationary side, but I've also been on the side that, you know, we might start peaking by the second quarter, right? That, we, you know, inflation might not normalize, but that it, you know, it, it could kind of top out and chop around for a period of time. And the caveat that I had, I say, okay, what is the, what is the, the risk that's not correct? What is the risk that, that inflation just keeps soaring higher? And it would be some sort of energy shortage, some sort of, some sort of key thing like that. And so this war as a catalyst uh, certainly adds fuel to the inflationary fire. Right, so we already had inflation from money printing, from other you know other shortages going into this, and now that you have an acceleration of commodity shortages and bifurcation of global supply chains, uh, that should add further fuel to the inflationary fire. And so you know it, it kind of remains to be seen how long this is going to go. Uh, but you know we start approaching more like the 70s at this point in terms of of, of energy security and overall inflationary levels and. One thing I pointed out recently is that we we have the the most negative real yields on on say short term U.S. Treasuries uh, since 1951, right? So so currency is getting devalued at a rate that has not been seen for quite a long time, and that's and that's using the official numbers. All right, I'm sure you don't want me to ask you this question, but wh- what is the kind of range of uh, inflation numbers we could see maybe next month? Do you think we could be going into double digit inflation? Could we go into 15% inflation? Because when I look at the price rises for uh, various things within the supermarkets, I look at the increase in petrol prices, we're not talking about 5 6% inflation prices here. We're talking about things that are going up 10%, 20%, 30%. So I think the official numbers, so next month, it, using that specific time frame, next month or two, I don't think you'll see a gigantic gap because if you look at the way the calculation works, a very big chunk of it is actually home, right? So there's owner's equivalent rent and rent uh, and things like healthcare, right? So those those are unlikely to change rapidly in a, in a month. Uh, if anything, we're seeing kind of home prices sort of kind of kind of level out to some extent. They you know they're they're cooling off compared to what they were doing over the past two years, and so there's a big chunk of the CPI index that won't change much now. The part that is going to change a lot is the, the food and the energy, right? So that's the that's the part that's going to be you know spiking up by double digit percentages, and that's where everyone kind of has their own unique inflation basket. So the official CPI number, you know, it'll it'll be hot, but it might not be as high as you think. But then, for example, let's say you're someone, your house is paid off, and you have a pretty tight monthly budget. Maybe you're living on fixed income, for example. So obviously, a big chunk of what you spend on goes towards food and energy. You know, so you, so someone in that situation, their effective inflation rate would be double digits, um, and so I, I think the quote unquote real numbers will be, uh, you know, at least in the low double digits. Uh, I wouldn't expect to see the official numbers show double digits right away, but if you know the longer this goes on, you you could hit double digit official CPI in the U.S. This is something Eric Weinstein talked to me about. He said having an official CPI figure is actually mainly particular, mainly useless for most people. Actually, people need a way of being able to calculate their own personal inflation numbers. Uh, I'm not sure if that's something that's particularly possible, but uh, as, I think you're kind of alluding to the same point there. It's, well, basically, yeah, there's, there's no... So inflation is kind of an arbitrary basket. What they do is they, they kind of take a sample 
of what the the average household uses. So what like what percentage of their expenses go towards housing? What what percentage of their expenses go towards medical care? What expenses goes towards transportation? And they kind of formed this, you know, this quote unquote average basket. Uh, and then they track over time what happens to the inflation of that basket. But then it's further tricky because instead of instead of doing home prices, they do like owner's equivalent rent. Uh, and they also do hedonic adjustments. So they basically, if things get better over time, like if a car gets better than it was five years ago, even if the price doubles, they'll say, well, it, it kind of stayed the same because sure, it doubled, but it got better. And they'll also do replacements. So for example, if a, if a prime cut of meat goes up in, in price, they'll assume that you you rotate it to a lower uh, quality or lower, lower uh, uh, price cut of meat. Uh, and so there are kind of ways to smooth out and lower that number uh, compared to what, if you just look at a, a raw number, if you just kind of pick something like what are bacon prices doing over a long period of time, generally you'll see that, that prices like that are a little bit higher than what the CPI basket's saying because you're, you, know, you don't have those hedonic adjustments, you don't have those kind of replacement things kicking in. Right, so for anyone listening rather than watching the video, as Lynn explained that they have a way of smoothing out this number, she had a wry smile across her face, a little grin. I mean, you're basically saying it's, a, it's kind of manipulative. Well, yeah, every change they've done to the CPI index has been lowering it, right? So it's not like they say, okay, we, we wanted to make this more accurate and this will actually over, this, this will state inflation is a little higher than we were previously saying. No, that never happens. It's always every change they make to it as well. It's actually a little lower because if you take into account X, Y, Z, uh, and so, you, yeah, you do get this understated level. Uh, now, you know, it, there's still informational value in the CPI index, but you have to know what you're looking at and, and break out certain things from it if you really want to go into the specifics because you do have this kind of artificially constructed basket with hedonic adjustments. And again, hedonic adjustments, they seem to go one direction. So a lot of a lot of services got lower quality over the past couple of years, right? So flying is less pleasant than it was before, and it was already unpleasant, right? So, but but are they having negative hedonic adjustments in terms of flying? No, of course not. So no. it, it's like you know hedonic adjustments and ways that they recalculate the index generally only point towards ways to try to understate it to some degree. So this transitory period that we've been sold is uh, seems to be going on. A bit longer than I think they expected, and I, I'm going to assume you, you you're not agreeing with any of these mainstream articles that have become out recently, trying to explain to us why why inflation is good for us. No, I, yeah, no, I don't believe inflation's good, uh, yeah. and it was kind of in some ways I viewed it as inevitable at this point, right? So with yeah. so much debt in the system, there's almost nothing that's going to happen other than trying to inflate the way out of it. So it's not surprising. Uh, I think you know if you were to ask me two years ago when I was calling for inflation, would I expect it to be almost 8% officially? Probably not, right? So even as someone in the inflationary side, this has been a stronger inflation surge than I would have guessed. Uh, obviously, war is adding to that now, but even before the war, this, this was already just in place. And so uh, basically, when you have the combination of a rapid expansion in the money supply with you know, various constraints. So supply chain constraints, commodity constraints, labor constraints, any sort of constraint, uh, you're going to get price inflation. Well, do you know what one of the weird side effects of this is that even with this business that I do, we have contracts, we have 
you know, advertising contracts, and some of them are multi-year. And uh, when me and Danny went to get coffee earlier, I was saying to him, do you know what? We probably actually need to have an inflation clause within the contract. It, it, is, that, is that something that, you know, uh, I, I guess what I'm getting at is like, I, I thought of this just now. It's one, something I just thought, shit, I should really be considering this. Is that something that's like generally considered or, or do you think that's something a lot of people are considering like myself as a, as a new clause they need? So in some of the longest term contracts, uh, it, it's pretty common to have inflation uh, components. And so, for example, if you operate a, like a pipeline, for example, uh, and you're regulated for like what you can charge, usually they will have uh, inflation components. The same thing would be true for long term leases for real estate. They often do have an inflation component. Uh, and it's because when you expect to operate a contract for years and decades, um, you start to take it into account. Now, often shorter term, you know, two, three, four, five-year contracts, often those you know, won't have those type of things. And so one of the challenges in inflationary environments is that there's just more frictions in terms of doing business because you know, when prices aren't stable, it's hard to do long-term planning and it's hard to structure contracts. It's hard to determine how much you're going to pay your input providers because you don't even know what you're going to be able to charge your customers. You know, right? So there are some companies that ha have like, they naturally have quick turnover, right? An example would be like a toll road, right? There are just people driving through paying all the time. Uh, whereas if you build something, right, you order raw materials, you make these contracts come in, you hold some inventory, it might be a six month turnaround until that's a finished product, right? And so if and if you kind of contracted your your selling prices and you didn't, you didn't uh, have the same duration on your input prices, you know, you could do all this work and then not make a profit because you got, you got, you know, your, your profit margin was 5% and that, that got kind of deleted by inflation, for example. On the other hand, if they structure it very well, they can benefit from it. They can be like, well, we, you know, we managed to, you know, have long duration input costs and we managed to have adjustable selling prices. And so we did great in inflation. So that's, that's where investors have to be careful about things they invest in because they try to find ones that can adjust their revenue faster then they, you know, while having a lot of fixed costs for their inputs, and so, but it, but just in general, from an economic standpoint, it's just a it's a more challenging operating environment for most types of companies when you have unclear inflation and pretty high inflation. And what are the what ec economic risks right now? Um, uh, I was speaking with Nick Carter the other day, and he said uh, humans flourish at a time of low commodity prices. With high commodity prices, this this brings a lot, lot of economic risk into the system. What are the kind of like more second order effects that maybe someone like I might not consider or somebody listening to this show might not consider? Well, one would be the risks of political upheaval, right? As we talked about when people, uh, you know, especially in developing countries, but this also can impact developed countries. So they take generally different forms. So if you're a presidential administration in a developed country and you have high inflation, you're much less likely to win re-election. Uh, and if it's in developing countries, you're more likely to have just outright protests and revolution. Um, another thing is that it, it can contribute to uh, a recession because people have to spend more of their money on gasoline, on electricity, on food, and then therefore they can buy fewer iPhones. So they, they delay their phone upgrade cycle. They delay other purchases. They might go on a, they might skip a vacation, right? So, so if, if their necessary input costs go up, they have to cut down on discretionary costs. And so that's how you can get a recession. And that's why when you have 
you know, you can have a stagflationary recession where commodity prices are high. Basically, the 70s would be a key example. So high commodity prices, uh, but you'd go through periods of, of severe economic softness because people are getting squeezed in their pocketbooks. And can you think, can you point to any historical examples where we've been through similar times and, you know, some of maybe your predictions of what could happen and how we may come, may come out of this situation? So the three closest decades would be the 2000s, the 1970s, and the 1940s. Uh, those were generally the inflationary commodity boom decades. Uh, and obviously, they had very different magnitudes. So the 2000s were considered a rather favorable decade. Uh, and part of why you had a commodity boom is that you had the rise of the, the quote-unquote BRIC nation. So Brazil, Russia, India, China. You, had a, you know, you had a dollar weakness uh, and so that that contributed to an emerging market boom, and they had a, a rapid increase in their commodity consumption at a time when commodity supplies were rather constrained. And so you had a big, you know, you had a big uptick in commodity prices, but it was generally, for the mo- most part, a good thing, right? It, it was it was kind of all, well, not that those price increases were good, but that it was happening for rather good reasons. A lot, you know, the world was was in some ways booming. Uh, now that eventually turned into the subprime mortgage crisis, uh, and that also, you know, high oil prices contribute uh, to the recession we eventually had in, in 2008. Uh, and so, by the end of that period, it was it was it was negative. Um, but overall, that that's that's kind of the, in some cases, the 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 best example you can think of. Another the the one prior to that, the big commodity boom before that would be the 70s, and that's where you had severe supply constraints because. So the United States found oil in the in the you know the kind of the second half of the 1800s. We had almost a century of just constant increase in our annual oil production. Occasional, you know, you dip, but it was a, a structural increase, and that peaked in 1970. So in 1970, U.S. oil production peaked and started to roll over structurally. Uh, at the same time, as baby boomers uh, across the world, including the U.S., were coming into home buying years. Um, and so you had basically a lot of commodity demand, uh, and you had limited commodity supply. So the United States became more reliant on Middle Eastern oil, and so that opened up all sorts of geopolitical conflicts uh, and shortages and inflation. Uh, and so that that was a big issue. Now that part of what alleviated part of why we had low commodity prices recently is because the U.S.'s structural decline in energy production reversed because of shale. So we added a lot of new energy to the to the world. Uh, that seems like it's probably behind us. Like we're still obviously producing a lot of shale, but we're not kind of rapidly increasing our shale production. We're kind of you know maybe not at the limits, but we're we're closer to the limits in terms of how much annual oil production we can we can produce. But anyway, so you know, so you had two thousands, you had the nineteen seventies, and if you go back before then, I've been using the nineteen forties as my closest macro comparison in terms of fiscal monetary policy. Kind of the reasons for inflation were more, you know, in the seventies the inflation was bank lending driven. You had you had demographics boom, uh, and of course fiscal added fuel to the fire. You had the guns and butter program, and you had Vietnam War. But a lot of that inflation was bank lending driven. In the forties, a lot of it was uh, purely war spending. So banks were not lending much. Uh, people had hardship. And a lot of the inflation and commodity price spikes you saw were obviously because of fiscal stimulus to support the war effort, right? So, uh, and so that was a, a very big year for commodities. And you had price controls, you had you had wage controls, you had kind of shortages. People had to substitute things. They're even, you know, they would literally change what physical coins are made of 
to try to conserve, uh, you know, more important commodities. That's that's how extreme it gets in some of those decades. And so I do think we're going into, you know, I've already been in the commodity bull market camp for the 2020s. And if we're going to have outright war, uh, you know, I've been using the 40s comparison. I always kind of say, hopefully there won't be like, you know, the kinetic war. But now if we're actually moving into the kinetic war, then it's even, unfortunately even closer to the 1940s because you have those those geopolitically driven commodity shortages. Do you, do you think we could be heading for like a very difficult decade or is this something that might be like a couple of years or is it all dependent on how long this war takes? So I, I think we are in a rather challenging decade. Uh, okay. And that was my view before the war and the war just adds to that view. Now, I don't think it'll be a straight line. I mean, if you look at the 40s and the 70s, right, it's not like just inflation was just constantly going up the entire decade. You had periods where it looked like it was getting better and then it would get worse again and then it would get better again. Then it would get worse again. Uh, and so I, you know, my base case would be to see the 2020s do the same thing where, you know, there might, you know, high commodity prices can eventually trigger a recession and hurt demand for commodities. And then you can get a cool off in prices and then you can get stimulus and then you can get higher, you know, you can get another uptick in terms of their prices. And so I, I think this will be cyclical to some extent, uh, but I think that the the structural backdrop will be one of, of less abundance. We can kind of characterize, so the past 25 years have been characterized by abundance in the sense that, you know, the world was able to just sacrifice, you know, we didn't have to worry about resiliency. We just, you know, supply chains were emphasize, emphasizing efficiency over resiliency. Everything was just-in-time delivery, lean manufacturing, do everything you can to, you know, minimize your inventory because that's efficient and it, it boosts your return on invested capital for a company. And so we, we've kind of assumed global peace, no, no geopolitical issues. We're all going to kumbaya get together. Uh, and as we enter a world where that's not the case anymore, we have to put more resiliency into our supply chains, more duplication, right? So if you, if you, have, if you duplicate things, it's inherently less efficient uh, and more inflationary, but more resilient. And so I think that because we've, in some ways, kind of enjoyed artificial uh, abundance, uh, where it's just it, it was not designed to handle any shock, whether it's a whether it's a pandemic, whether it's a war, doesn't matter. It's just not not designed to handle any shock, and so it's inevitable that that period was going to end one way or another. Now, the specific way or the specific time could have been different, but it was just it was just asking for disruption. And now that we have multiple disruptions. Uh, I do think this is going to be a more challenging decade in terms of the the chance that you go to a store and they have exactly what you want in any color you want, for example, as just like a privileged case, that's ch more challenging now. And then obviously the more extreme event, some people have trouble even just getting food, just getting food at reasonable prices. And so there's a big spectrum for how, how badly people could be affected. Then you can add things like, you know, uh, uh, a cyber tax. You know, right? So, so there's all sorts of things that can go wrong. And so, one of the things I've been recommending is that people should have reasonable stockpiles of things they need, right? So, don't assume that the global supply chain is going to work perfectly efficiently all the time. So, because companies don't have very big inventory, I think households should have decent inventory. They should try to offset the lack of resiliency in global supply chains by having their own inventories. Uh, but of course, the challenge is that not everybody can build an inventory at the same time. If everybody at this, if, if everybody tries to hoard, that's when price that's when shelves go bare right away. So I think the key thing is to try to 
you know, do mild gradual hoarding over time where you, you build up, you know, you build up uh, what you have, what we, you know, so you can get through multi-week or multi-month periods of severe shortages and things. Okay, that's that's quite severe. Um, and we did see that during the COVID crisis where people were stocking up on loo rolls and pastas. We had it at our local supermarkets, like shelves were bare. You couldn't get pastas, you couldn't get rice, you couldn't get certain tinned food. It was, it was strange to see and... I guess the preppers would already have been doing this. I, I, and I also imagine people listening, Lynn, are going to be thinking, well, uh, what else is Lynn doing? What are, you, what are you doing to economically protect yourself? What, you know, where are you making sure you're resilient economically? Well, yeah, one is making sure you have all these inventories. Because even the best case, even so the less dramatic case, is just that if you have paper towels and, and you know, uh, non-perishable foods, you know, what are the chances that the price of those things are going to go down? in the next couple of years, right? So, so it's just a, it's a better inflation adjusting cash than cash. So that's, that's if, if you just never need to rely on the stockpiles, there's that. And of course, the worst case scenario is it, it keeps you more comfortable and safe during, during more severe periods. So there's that. And then two, for investments, just being diversified and having things that, that benefit from inflation and that protect you from inflation. So for example, if you're worried about energy prices, you can own energy companies. If you're worried about, you know, commodity prices, you can have commodity companies. Uh, you can have, you know, things like gold and Bitcoin to protect you from devaluing fiat currencies. And and there are multiple ways to play it depending on how much volatility and how much diversification or concentration someone wants in their portfolio. But I think the emphasis is on being defensive, being diversified, and being resilient against uh, an inflationary decade. Even though, I mean, there will be periods of time where some of those inflation hedges are overdone, right? So everybody rush out and buy energy stocks, and then you know, maybe you get some sort of de-escalation in the conflict, and you know you go through a year where the, where those investments don't work out well. But then, like I said, you could have fiscal stimulus, and you have you kind of come out the other side even even higher prices. And so it won't be a straight line, but I, I generally uh, still prefer inflationary types of assets. Right. Okay. All right. Last thing I wanted to ask you about. Um, with the great cancelling of Russia, uh, treasury bills are no longer risk-free. Uh, ownership is no longer risk-free. If you are on the wrong side of the US, US government, they can cancel you, um, which also feels like a kind of geopolitical mistake. Um, we talked before about currency wars. It feels like we're heading into uh, a system of kind of three, like a, a system that's kind of going to split into three. The, the the dollar will still exist as a reserve currency. Uh, we we will see growth of the digital renminbi, and hopefully we th- and I, and something I've obviously bet on is that uh, Bitcoin is the life lifeboat that a lot of people consider that they they might use because they don't want to be stuck in one particular system. They want maybe a per- permissionless system. How are you kind of looking at this? Yeah, so I think that these events accelerate uh, a multipolar reserve system. So I think that you know there were already signs of that happening. So Russia, for example, was already starting to price uh, its energy in more than one currency. Uh, we were seeing kind of uh, 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 more trade between India and Russia and China and Russia, uh, and, and even like Russia and Europe. Was, you know, some of that was getting uh, euro-denominated. Uh, more of their trade was euro-denominated. And obviously this accelerates it, uh, where Every country, especially ones that are not particularly friendly to the West, 
is probably reevaluating their reserve practices. The Wall Street Journal ran a piece called If Russian Reserves Aren't Really Money, That the World's In for a Shock, right? So in addition to the fact that that T-bills and euro bonds and all these things, uh, in addition to the fact that they pay interest rates, they're well below the inflation rate. So, you know, they're, they're undesirable as a long-term store of value. Uh, now they can also be censored. Uh, and they always could be. And it's just now that now that there's more awareness uh, that those tools are willing to be used. And you could even do things like selective defaults. You could do things like freezing reserves. Uh, and so, in theory, that increases the desirability of, of reserves that can't be canceled. And so the knee-jerk one is gold because that's the one that central banks already own. It's already big and liquid, something like $12 trillion estimated market, uh, less volatile. And so that, you know, for example, the biggest chunk of Russian reserves that are not frozen are their gold reserves. Uh, and so you look around at the countries and think like, you know, if I, if I was running a country, I would think like, why why don't we have more gold than we have now, right, compared to what we have in terms of dollars or euros uh, and things like that. So that that's number one. And then, yes, the longer you look out in the future, the more attractive Bitcoin arguably becomes as a reserve asset. So right now, at less than a trillion dollar market cap and as a rather volatile asset, it is challenging for them to put that into, into their reserves in, in very large amounts. I mean, you can have obviously smaller countries or smaller allocations to it. I think uh, it shows up first in things like sovereign wealth funds, because you know if you, if you define something as an investment, you get away with more volatility than if you define something as a reserve. So kind of by their nature, central bank reserves are supposed to be very conservative. So things like currencies or gold, uh, whereas sovereign wealth funds are, you know, they can, they, they buy things like equities, uh, even some central banks buy equities, but you know, for the most part, you see equities focused in sovereign wealth funds. And so Bitcoin can start there, you know, basically companies can buy Bitcoin related investments, uh, or they can buy Bitcoin. So these sovereign wealth funds, and then the bigger that Bitcoin gets, the more widely held it is, the, the more liquidity that there is, the less volatility that there is, uh, the more central banks could start looking at that as a viable, uh, neutral reserve asset because it, it kind of fixes two things for them. One, they have a, a an asset that can't be frozen by a, a unilateral third party. Uh, third party, and two, uh, they also can go around sanctions and they can have kind of uh, permissionless payments. Uh, and so that that is something that you'd think would become more attractive to countries around the world. All right, Len, thank you for this. You're, you're the smartest person I know. Every time I uh, get to ask you these questions, they directly impact uh, the things I do. Anyone listening, if you've not yet signed up to Lynn's newsletter, uh, go to our website. Is it still $199? It is, yes. It's not inflation adjusted? No, but I will say the one thing, when I set the original price, I was originally going to put it at 149 but because I was expecting inflation, I was like, let me just... Uh, Put a couple years of forward inflation component in, so that's one reason I've not raised prices is because I I, I priced it in such a way that I was fine with the current number. Well, it's the best uh, two hundred dollars I spend a year. But thank you for this; I really appreciate it. Looking forward to seeing you in Miami and catching up again in person. And, and appreciate you coming on early to do this. It's going to be a really helpful conversation for for many of the people listening. Um, so thank you, and I will see you soon. Looking forward to it. All right. Thanks for listening to What Bitcoin Did. If you want to get in touch, the best thing you can do is head over to my Telegram channel or you can hit me up on my email, which is hello at whatbitcoindid.com.